chapter 3, which Preeti just read for us. Look at it if you can. We're in the whole chapter. And before we begin, I'll pray. Father, would you be our help? Would you give us strength for this now? Not just strength to stay awake, but strength for our souls to love what you show us. Thank you for your word, and thank you for the Holy Spirit who helps us. Oh, please, would you help us now, God? Would you be honored? Would you look great through your word? We love you, and we ask for your help only through Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So, Ezra 3, which Preeti just read, the exiles have returned. They've returned from Babylon and Persia, and we're going to see in this chapter, we saw what Preeti just read, they rebuild the altar, they begin offering sacrifices, and then they begin to lay the foundation of the temple. They want to rebuild the temple as well. So we're going to observe three things that happen in this chapter, and we're going to see what lessons that God has for us through these three things. So here's what we're going to see. First, we're going to see that the people were made weak so that they would learn to trust God. They were made weak so that they would learn to trust God too. And that trust produced radical obedience to God's Word. And three... It also produced two opposite emotional responses from the people. So that's what we're going to see. We're going to go through those three things in this text and see what God has to say to us. So let's see first that the people were made weak so that they would learn to trust God. This is verses 1 through 4. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns... The people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in, in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands." And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord morning and evening. So this tells us, this verse tells us the reason that they rebuilt the altar, they started caring about the altar and the sacrifices was because they were afraid. Do you see that? Verse 3, fear was on them. It says, for fear was on them or because fear was on them, because of the peoples of the lands. So think about this. War was a regular occurrence. There weren't international treaties to help protect smaller nations and smaller tribes. Might was right. If you were strong enough, you went to your neighbor, you took what you wanted, and you left. That's how life was, and it still is for some places in this world. The UAE has had remarkable stability and safety for the size of the nation that this is. And part of the stability of this country comes from having strong allies, good defense, good military, strong economy. The Jews had none of that. 
They've moved back 900 miles after their whole land was destroyed, and now they're gathered in Jerusalem, and there are no walls. Walls matter now, but if you've got a plane or a helicopter, your walls aren't going to protect you. Walls mattered big time back then. They were your defense. If you had walls, you were safe. These Jews had none. Their cities had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. So they're afraid. And not only are they fearful, but Haggai, the prophet, will go on to tell us that God is disciplining these people. So just so you know how your Bible fits together, the last things that happen historically in your Old Testament are in Ezra and Nehemiah. Those are the last parts of history that happen in the Old Testament. And the prophets who prophesied during that time are Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So you can fit your Bible together. So Haggai is prophesying during the time when the exiles came back. This is what he says. This is Haggai 1, verses 2 through 6. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm, and he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. So, God is telling the people, listen, you're relying on yourself. Since you've come back to the land, you're not looking to worship me. You're not looking to rely on me. You're planting your fields. You're building houses for yourself. But notice, you plant and you don't get a return. You eat and you're never full. You earn your wages and it's like you're putting them in a bag with holes. You never have enough. And God says it's happening because you have neglected your relationship with me. My temple is in ruins. Because you're relying on yourself, because you're not seeking me, I'm making sure that you don't have enough. That's what God tells them. So consider the people of Israel's situation. They're in Jerusalem. They have no physical protection. They're not a strong people. They're about as helpless as you can get. They're afraid of being killed, ambushed by anyone who might decide to. And they hardly have enough provision. And God is the one who put them in this situation. And he does it so that they'll turn to him. He does it so that they'll turn to him. God does this. This is God's way. It's not just God's way with people in the Old Testament. It's his way with us as well. This is one of my favorite passages from the New Testament. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. 
The reason this is one of my favorite passages is because it shows that God's perspective is so different than ours. God's priorities for our lives is very different than the priorities we have for our own lives. Listen to this. This is 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 9. Paul is speaking, and he says this. We do not want you to be unawares, brothers, unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Do you hear what Paul's saying? He's saying God gave us more than we could handle. Some people say, oh, God never gives you more than you can handle. He does if he loves you. If he loves you, he will give you more than you can handle. He did it to his great beloved apostle Paul. Paul says we were burdened beyond our strength. We were sure that we were going to die. God took us to the very edge of life and death. We could see over the precipice. We were so frightened that we despaired of life itself. And why did God do it? To make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That's exactly what God is doing to these Jewish people. He's bringing them to the very edge and letting them feel their helplessness. And he's doing it so that they would turn. They would turn and hope in him and not rely on themselves. When you know you're defenseless, you're helpless. Anybody could show up in the middle of the night and take everything you have, including your life. Who are you going to turn to? These Jews turned to God, and that's why God brought them to this desperate, scary place. And God will do this to you. And it's not because He doesn't love you. It's because He does. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. He says, I came that your joy might be full. Which means, if God does whatever it takes to make you rely on Him, it means that is what is for your joy. Always. Really is one thing to say, well, you know, if, if something were to happen to me, then I would rely on God. But it's another thing to say, And I want to seek it every hour and every day and every week and every month to rely on you more. Do you share his priorities? Do you trust him enough to ask him to do whatever it takes to make you happy as you rely on him? He will, and it will be good when he does. Now, 
For the Israelites, their turning to God in trust produced in them a radical obedience to God's word. So notice how emphatic our chapter is, chapter 3, about these men and women obeying according to God's word. So they were afraid. That's why they turned to God. That's what verse 3 tells us. Verse 2 says, they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses. So they went to the law of Moses and they said, okay, how do we do this? That's the way we want to do it. Verses 4 and 5 said this, and they, and they kept the feast of booths as it is written. And they offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule. So they're keeping the feast, they're offering the sacrifices just as God's word tells them to do. They're being careful to obey. And after that, this is verse 5, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts. So then the people recognize that they need to start rebuilding the temple if they're going to be obedient. So that's what they do. When the foundation is laid, verse 10 says this, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. So Ezra 3 is again pointing out that when these people are trying to obey, they're trying to do it in an exact way that was given to them through David. David gave these directions. They're being careful to do everything according to these directions. And we can see them in 1 Chronicles 16, these directions that David gave. And then what do the people sing? They sing God's word. They sing what David wrote for them to sing. Verse 11, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. So here's what's going on. The people were afraid. They realized they needed to turn to God away from themselves. They wanted to seek him and to rely on him for his help. And that meant that they trusted his commands. Relying on him looked like going to his word again and again to be careful to obey everything that it said. Now, we need to be clear. Trust and obedience are not the same thing. Trust and obedience, they're not the same thing. If you trust someone, you have confidence in that person. I'm confident in their goodness. They're a good person. I can trust them. Or I'm confident in their strength, their ability. They can get it done. I trust them. So trust is your confidence in a person. Obedience is doing what they say. There's a difference. Christians are not saved by our obedience to God's commands. We are saved by Christ's obedience to God's commands in our place. And it's counted to us. It's put in our account by trust. That's how we receive it. But if you really trust him, if you do really trust Jesus, then you'll do what he says. So, Imagine two people, they've gone hiking up the side of a mountain, they were on a trail they weren't supposed to be on, they slip, both of them fall, 
They slide towards the edge of the cliff. They both grab on to some roots of an old tree that's hanging over the side. They're hanging on for dear life. They know if they fall, they're going to die. And they hear below them someone yelling, it's the park ranger. I told you not to go on that trail, didn't I? You didn't listen. Here's what I want you to do. Let go. There's a net about 20 feet below you that you can't see. And if you let go, you'll fall, but you'll be safe. If you don't let go, I'm afraid that tree will fall with you and kill you. So the first man says, oh, he was right about the trail. I'm really scared about this tree falling on me. And let's go. And he's safe. The second man is holding on to the roots and says, Ah, you was right about the trail. I trust you, park ranger. I trust you. I trust you. He keeps holding on. I trust you. I trust you. Until the tree falls and crushes him. Which of the two really trusted the park ranger? The one who said that he did or the one who did what he said? There's a difference. If you really trust someone, you do what they say. If your trust in Christ only obeys when it's easy, it's not trust. If your trust in Christ follows him only when it makes sense to you, it's not trust. If your trust in Christ only listens to him when you know that it's going to benefit you in the short term, it's not trust. What I mean when I say radical obedience is obedience that's hard, painful, costly in the short term. That's real trust. When it costs to obey, when you obey and you lose something, that's, that shows that you really trust the God that you say you trust. And here's what I want you to see. If you believe that God is good, and He is, He sent His Son to die for you, to die for sins He never committed. That's how good He is. That's how kind He is to you. And if you believe that he controls all things, which he does, then if he asks you to do something, you can trust that it's for your good. And whatever consequences come as a result of your obeying, as painful as they may be, he will work it all for your good. That's what I want you to see. He only asks us to do things that are for our good and his glory in the end. And whatever pain might come while we obey, he'll work it for our good and his glory in the end. If you see life that way, which is what reality is, that is reality. And if you see life that way, 
then you'll know that obeying Jesus is always safe. It's always the safe and the wise course to take if you believe those things. Now, it may look unsafe and unwise to obey Jesus in the short term. It may look that way, and it will to this world. This world will think you're crazy if you obey Jesus in everything. Radical obedience to Jesus looks crazy to this world. You told the truth, and it cost you 3,000 dirhams. That's crazy. You shared the gospel with your coworker and you lost your job or your life. That's crazy. You're going to stay faithful to your husband or wife when it really would benefit you more to go with this other person. That's crazy. It all seems crazy if you don't believe that the God who commanded is working all things for your good. But He is. Because Jesus rules, because you belong to Him, your trusting obedience always leads to deeper life and deeper joy. He will make sure of it. So, Christian, rely on God. Take Him at His word as true. Let's be radically committed to trusting Jesus in our obedience in everything. We, we do have a tendency and the temptation to want to fudge the lines a little bit. Like, I know Jesus doesn't want me to sleep with someone who's not my spouse, but we're we're planning on getting married, so it's okay. That's not radical obedience. It's not. Or I know this money's not mine, but I'm just going to use it, and then I'll put it back later. That's not radical obedience. Trust him. Trust him. He's trustworthy, and he's good, so believe him. The Jews knew they needed God. They cast themselves completely on his care, and this produced intense obedience to his word. And it also produced two opposite emotional responses in the people. So in their zeal, they want to obey God. They begin to lay the foundation of the house. Once it's built, they have a worship service there. Everyone gathers to worship at the foundation of the temple. So the foundation just means this is a slab. They haven't actually built the building yet, but they've laid the foundation where they're going to build the temple. Verses 11 through 13 say this. They sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout 
from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So imagine this. Joyful shouting and loud weeping in the same worship service. That would be wild if it happened in this room. Some people are shouting for joy. Some people are weeping loudly, but this is huge. It says it can be heard from miles away. So many people are gathered, and the noise is so great of shouting and of weeping. It's a very emotional time, but opposite emotions are happening at the same worship gathering, shouting for joy, weeping. Which group was right in their response? Which was the right emotional response to this moment? Shouts for joy, weeping, cheering, or mourning. They're both right. This was an emotionally complicated moment. God was preserving His people. His promises to live among them, they weren't over. And the foundation of the temple was proof of that. He had plans for them. He was not done with them. He brought them out of exile. He was redeeming his people. But much had been lost. The old men knew that. They had seen the glory of the first temple, and all they had now was a stone slab. This is a great day in the history of Israel. Chapter 3 of of Ezra is a great day in the history of Israel, but it is not a great day because nothing had been lost. It was a great day because in spite of all that had been lost, God was still redeeming them. If you're a Christian, you know what this is like, this kind of emotional mixture. You know what it's like to have lost so much. From the brokenness of this world or because of your sin, you know what it's like to experience deep loss and grief. And you also know that God is able to give redemption in spite of it. Weeping and joy, tears and hope. The old men are grappling with the fact that Israel had lost so much because they had rebelled. So this is 50 years after these men had been taken away. They'd seen the glory of the old temple, and now they're back, and they've seen what their sin has done. Sin always brings loss. Sin always steals. Remember that. Remember that. Sin always steals. It never, ever brings lasting happiness. Not once. 
and it never will. It may give happiness for a moment, but it will leave a knife in your back. It always does. These men were seeing what their rebellion had taken from them. And at the same time, the young are rejoicing over the fact that a new temple has been rebuilt. How kind of God. He was giving them redemption after their great, great sin. Redemption. And he always does when we turn to him. Always. Remember that too. God will always redeem you when you really turn to him. Always. Just like sin will never make you happy if you turn to it, if you turn to God, he will redeem you no matter where you've been or how long you've been there. Always. Hold those two truths. Hold them. I want you to hold those two truths. When you feel tempted to sin, to disobey God, tell yourself, not once in the history of the world has disobeying God increased the happiness of anyone in the end. Not once. Tell yourself that. Remember these old men when you're tempted to sin. But if you've sinned, and you will, you have and you will, remember the rebuilding of the temple and tell yourself, not once in the history of the world has God turned anyone away, no matter what they've done or how long they've done it for, if they truly turn to Him? For help. Not once. And he never will. Jesus says this. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. So sin, like any other master, will destroy you. But Jesus says, I came that my sheep might have life and have it abundantly. See the contrast there? Any other master will kill you, steal from you, and destroy you always. But Jesus came that you would have life, not just any life, abundant life. So how does he do that? How does he do that? Because we've all sinned. We know we've all sinned. These old men knew it. We know it. He goes on. One more verse. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So if you know sin steals, kills, and destroys, and that's all you know, then all you have in your future is death, loss, destruction. But Jesus can give you life, an abundant life, because he lays down his life. This is the heart of the good news that we believe, that Jesus Christ laid down his life to be punished for sin he never committed, so that those he cares for might be forgiven. 
And so that he might give you redemption, he could draw you out of whatever sin or loss you are captured in, if you turn to him. We have an amazing God. We have an amazingly patient, redemptive God. So turn to him. He wants us to trust him. He loves us by bringing us to a place where we have to rely on him. He'll do that for you. He did it to the people of Israel. He will do it to you if he loves you. Our reliance will show itself in obedience. So let's be radically committed to obeying everything Jesus said. Settle it in your heart and mind that obedience always is for your good in the end because your Jesus is good. He's trustworthy. And let's remember when we're tempted to disobey that sin is a killer, it's a thief. That's what these old men knew. Remember that. Call it to mind. This is how you fight sin, by the way. You call to mind truth like this. Sin always kills. It's never once given what it's promised. And then tell yourself this, but God will give redemption to anyone who turns to him in faith. That's what these people saw. It's what he did for them at the foundation of the temple. And it's what he will always be for us when we turn to him and his son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that we can rest all the weight of our lives on your word. And you will never, ever, ever fail those who turn to you who turn to you for redemption because of their sin or turn to you to obey, you will never forsake. There is no one who has ever lived who is like you, God, and you have always been. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The people saying, you are good, You're good. You're good. And we see it here. In spite of their sin, you brought redemption. Lord, would you help us to trust you? No matter what you bring us through, I pray we would not resent you when you take our health, when you take away prosperity, but that we would turn to you in trust that you are good. And your steadfast love endures forever. Would you make us a people who shine like lights in this world because we obey you no matter the cost because we know you rule all things and you're good and you will work them for good for those who trust your son. Thank you that we know your goodness because you didn't spare him, but you gave him up for us. Pray that we would believe that in the darkest times and in the best of times, there's no one like you. Make us like your son, we ask in his name.